Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a lovely spring day, blue skies, swallows in the sky, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. We're back together again, which is wonderful, in a splendid setting. And we're here today, Mark, to celebrate something rather fun. Uh, About three weeks ago now, we were delighted to debut our next book in the Walking Companions series. This is the Ambleside Walking Companions, 16 fabulous walks around this honeypot town in the Central Lakes. And today we're going to really celebrate this town, its remarkable history and its fabulous heritage. So much about this town I learned from researching uh, the book with you. You wrote all of the walks, of course, and we had great fun putting it together, didn't we? We did. I know you love Ambleside, and the more you come to this town and appreciate its setting, the more you realise it's a really warm and welcoming place. Today, I think we'll get the grasp of it. We should say up the top of the podcast, if you're interested in buying that guide, it's www.countrystride.co.uk. But we're going to give a real introduction to this great setting today, Mark. One of the things that came out of the book for me was this span of history that the town encapsulates, going all the way back to the very first settlers coming through the Roman period, I know a great passion of yours, through to the Norse settlers uh, in this older part of Ambleside, through to the great Victorian heyday. And we're going to try and cover a little bit of all of that today, alongside some of the important sites in Ambleside, some of the great personalities that have shaped this town through the years. And who's our guest today, Mark? Well, we were delighted to invite to write the brief history of Ambleside in our little guide, a certain lady, a blue badge guide, Alison Pickering, a local lady who has a great love of Ambleside. I'm sure will be the perfect guide for our expedition. That's wonderful. We've got a lot to get through today, Mark, as we move through history. And I can see Alison just over there in the Rothe Park, one of the most fabulous public parks, I think, in the Lake District. Absolutely love it here. So let's go and meet Alison and begin today's Country Stride. This is fabulous. I'm standing in the midst of Rothy Park. There's uh, rooks chirping in the sky and I can hear in the background the voices of the happy children in the playground. Well, I assume it's happy. And it's next to St Mary's Church, that wonderful spire that looms up uh, behind us. Wonsfield Pike over to our right. And ahead of me, I'm looking straight at Low Pike and High Pike, that fabulous ridge that many people love when they're doing the Fairfield Horseshoe. In the foreground, we have bluebells underneath the little canopies of trees that are now coming out into leaf. And they rest on outcrops of rock beautifully embroidered with a tapestry of green. We are in a wonderful place place in the company of a wonderful lady. Alison Pickering, it's gorgeous to see you and thank you for giving your time today. Can you tell us a little bit why you came to Ambleside or what you do here? 
Hello, Mark. Lovely to meet you. Um, I came to Ambleside for the very first time when I was just a child. My parents brought me on holiday and they had me walking up the Old Man of Coniston. I uh, wasn't a great fan of walking and got to the Old Man of Coniston, looked down and saw the gondola on Coniston Water and thought, wow. And so when I had children of my own, I brought them here too. We went to Coniston again for 30 odd years. But one holiday we were walking and we found that closer to Ambleside would be an ideal place to live should we ever get the chance. The chance did come along and so it was pre-lockdown. We moved house, our children were older, we could escape to the countryside. So we set up home here and then I thought I need to know more about this area. There's one thing to come and visit and go walking and there's another thing to dig underneath the surface. So I had the opportunity to join a Cumbria Blue Badge training course, the first training course that had been held for 20 years. And now I take tours around the area specialising in everything to do with William Wordsworth or Beatrix Potter. But particularly I love Ambleside so much, it's become my home and I've been really welcomed in by the community of Ambleside. Instinctively, as a Blue Badge guide, you will guide us today a little bit. What is your plan? We are going to leave this beautiful park. We're going to walk down the side of the river, the Rothe. We are going to find ourselves down at the Roman fort. And then we will walk into town and go and have a look at the milling history. People often don't realise what fantastic history of 600 years worth of milling has been going on in Ambleside. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm itchy to get down the river to see the fort because I love Roman forts. Well, it's a gorgeous spot. The sun's shining. We've got a wonderful, refreshing breeze, which is waving the short growth in the very diverse pasture that we're standing on. And we're looking at a lovely surround of fells, Todd Crag looming over us. And I can see as far as Weatherlam, which is quite a distance and uh, great cars. Uh, and we come on to the open space in Borrens Park. Borrens Park, which is named after the evidence of this Roman fort. And I'm in my element when I'm in a Roman fort. We're standing in the midst of it. And for anybody who's not been here in this Roman fort, it's quite significant how it's been resuscitated. So you've got just about foot-high foundation walls that show the outline of certain elements of the barrack blocks. What we do see uh, is the commanding officer's house. Where we're standing is the headquarters building with behind us the strong room, which is a sunken area. That's where all the wages, the salary, the salarium was kept. And over to our north, you can see the granary. And as they always say, an army marches on its stomach. And definitely the granary was a very important element of the Roman garrison's life. This will have been a very significant place. This was established at the time of Agricola, AD 79. Considerable town, a considerable civil settlement. It's not certain what it was called. Maps and books of all over the years called it Galava, but Clanaventa has been associated with this site as opposed to Glanaventa at Ravenglass. It means the marketplace on the shore, which fits here very well. So we have this fascinating sense of a thousand people who will have lived here in Roman times and it really came into its own under Hadrian from 122 and became the fulcrum of activity 
leading through the Lakeland Fells up to Carlisle, Penrith, down to Kendal and across to Ravenglass. You name it, this was a very important place. It links through to Hardknot Fort in one direction and Broome at Brookavum, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. All this speculation about High Street being a Roman road uh, probably was a native road. They all have gone over Kirkston and down that way, I rather fancy, in the main. They were the overlords. They didn't have to struggle going over great mountains unnecessarily. This is Ambleside going back nearly 2,000 years. Alison, can you give me a picture of how you see life at that time? Yes, it would have been very busy. It's a beautiful, quiet, peaceful day today. But just take yourself back to the first century and second century and it would have been a hub of activity. The Romans would have been looking after the grain, the supplies that would go off to the other forts and also for themselves. They would be surrounded on the north side and the east side of the settlement just outside of the fort. People that would be perhaps more local or have come especially to do trade with the Romans and a whole settlement grows up outside of a Roman fort. As soon as uh, the Roman roads started coming, they could trade over considerable distances with amazing commodities that they'd never had any concept of. Can you name anything that's unusual to the Romans? Well, I rather like the fact that they brought damsons, apples and pears, because with Cumbria's damson history in the Lythe Valley, I rather like that connection with uh, Damascus and the damsons that they brought with them. And to think of this area, perhaps they grew damson, apples and pears, perhaps there was an orchard here. We know that there were only crab apples here before the Romans came. They brought from the east very succulent apples, and it's evidenced on Hadrian's Wall and the fort at Bruff by Sands is Abalava, the place of the apple tree. They grew an orchard there. In the tunic of every Roman auxiliary would be an apple that sustained him for the day. And it will have come from Bruff by Sands. The other thing that's significant here, we wandered across the meadows and we entered a bit of a marshy ground there. And the nearest point to the rise, uh, the berm of the fort, that was probably the course of the Rothe. And there will have been a jetty, I suppose, there. Yes, that's right, Mark. They had a wharf so right on the edge of the fort onto the Rothe. And, of course, from the south gate of the fort, it would have led directly onto the lake. So they would have had the fantastic advantage of being able to use water transport for moving their supplies and goods. The Venice of the north. <laughs> yes. So when was this site first excavated, Alison? Just before the First World War, going back now to about 1913. And a gentleman called... R.G. Collingwood, he was the son of W.G. Collingwood, who was Ruskin's right-hand man. So this is R.G. Collingwood, his son. He excavated the site and he stopped because of the First World War. It interrupted his proceedings. But after the war, he came back and carried on. So what happened to the items in between time? Well, he popped them in a shed here and here they stayed until he came back and carried on with the task. Collingwood had found coins and pottery, but a really significant find was actually much later than that, 1960s. And that wasn't by any um, expert archaeologist. That was by a builder. They found a gravestone. It's really unusual to find a Roman gravestone. And what was even more interesting about this gravestone was that it was for two men. That was one thing that was very unusual. And with the same surname, they were both called Flavius, the other thing was that it said they were killed by enemies within the fort. 
Now, there is a big question mark, whatever happened there, because as far as we know, this wasn't ever subjected to enemy attack. It really is fascinating to see this place in that context of the Roman, but the period after that is a little bit vague. It's the real Dark Ages, the early Dark Ages. But if we push forward, say, 500 years, with the arrival of the Vikings significantly in West Cumbria, is there evidence in Ambleside of their life here? We know that Norsemen were here. They brought with them their culture and their language. So there's evidence all around us of the names of the fells, force for waterfall as well. Ambleside itself, what does that mean in Viking terms? There are two versions of where Ambleside got its name. One of them is Ammelsetra, which translates to river, sandbank, summer pasture, rather like that one. Setra being... Being the pasture. And the other alternative you can go for is Hamel, etc. Now, Hamel was a Norse leader, and perhaps he was the first man here, so it was Hamel's pasture. Mm. And over the years, before they were writing things down, they were listening to words and changing it slightly. So it's been recorded over time as being Amelsate, mm. Amelside, and gradually it becomes Ambleside. Well, that's been a wonderful uh, perambulation over quite a few centuries. It's mind-blowing to think of all the humans that have been through this landscape before we get to the Ambleside that everybody knows of. And I think the best way of finding that is to go up Stock Gill. That's right, yes. It's where the heart of the industry began back in the 1300s. That was a lovely stroll up into the heart of the town. There's a few people and it all seemed very content. Well, the day is so beautiful and it's not packed. It's that time of year when there's not a huge throng. This is Ambleside at its best in many ways. It's spring, everything is upbeat and we beat our way up through Cheapside, away from the marketplace and we've come up into Stockgill Lane and we've entered the park by Stockgill itself and we can hear that in the background. And that gives me the lead in, Alison, to that period in time when Ambleside had a whole different purpose. With the adequate supply of water in the Lake District and the trees and also the sheep, the milling of wool was a very big business. The very first mill was a corn mill and that was at the foot of the Stockgill Falls, just up the uh, back from where we are now. And that was in 1324. So we're going back almost 700 years in time. That one was called Long Coats. The next one was a little bit later called Mill Doors. And then things really started taking off with the milling industry in about the uh, 15 and 1600s when the Braithwaites, who owned the land on the other side of the Beck, were starting lots of mills, making a good deal of money. It was actually one of the Braithwaites that pushed forward for Ambleside to have a market charter. The mills were for fulling. So fulling is where you're cleaning the wool and you're shrinking it in order to be able to process it. The market charter was given in 1650. And if you think back, that was a time when Charles I had lost his head the year before. There was no monarch on the throne. So the person who granted the market charter was Lady Anne Clifford. 
quite well known through Cumbria as being a very uh, determined character. She was the sheriffess of Westmoreland. And here we are back in Westmoreland again now with changes in the councils, but it was Lady Anne Clifford in 1650. At one point in the 1500s, there were five mills that were powered by this stockback. Then by the 1800s, there were nine mills powered by this one back. Altogether, between Ambleside and Rydal, you were looking at about 29 mills. You can see what a big industry it was, but it wasn't always cloth. The cloth that the market charter was granted for was called Lindsay Woolsey cloth. It was a certain kind of good, strong linen. It used flax. And when we came up Church Street, that used to be called Ratton Row. And the reason that it's called Ratton Row, before there was a church there, of course, it was ratting processes where you've got locally grown flax and you're separating out the flax to then turn it into a useful uh, substance. Uh, you could be using it in cloth uh, or for rope, for instance. By the time we got to the 1800s, the Lancashire mills were really taking off. Ambleside could no longer really compete. And so even in 1795, we had the fulling mill that was next to the bridge house, still using this back, enlarged, new machinery, two years later, bankrupt. They just couldn't compete, no matter what they did. It needed someone with a little bit more of imagination. The stock force mill was managed by a miller from Skelliff Bridge. So they had this problem. There was no more market for wool, but the Lancashire mills doing all of the processing of the woolen industry, they needed bobbins. Of course, we are blessed with a lot of trees, and so they were coppicing wood. And you would have oak would be used for swill baskets, and you'd have the hazel, and you would be making bobbins for those Lancashire mills. So instead of processing wool, you're now processing wood. Could you give us a bit of a clue what an actual bobbin was? The bobbin is uh, it's like a little wooden cotton reel. Nowadays, people aren't sewing so much, are they? But no. uh, it's a little reel that would have all of the thread wrapped around it. The wooden products, we had a gentleman called Charles Horrocks came in to manage the mill. And he used to be a salesman for his family firm, which was in Sheffield. They made bowler hats. He had this expertise in knowing how to turn wood. So not just for bobbins, he then understood how you could make the inner for a bowler hat. So he came here as a manager. He really made the mills thrive, but there was a big problem in that stock force mill. You've got wood, you've got shavings, you've got poor health and safety, there's constant risk of fire, and stock force mill actually did burn to the ground. Massive loss of employment for Ambleside because of the loss of this mill through fire. It got into the Westmoreland Gazette, and there was an appeal that went countrywide Loads of money was sent in, and he was like, brilliant. But what I'm going to do is not rebuild that mill. I'm just going to make my other mill next to it, waterfall mill, much bigger and better. And I will turn what was stock force mill into drying sheds, because you need to dry out the wood before you use it. And so he was very, very successful then, because he had that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, knowing how to use money and... His daughter was the same. So later on, she is then turning the mill into use as a laundry when there were all the hotels in Ambleside. Instead of using the mills to wash raw linen, they're now doing bed linen. 
I find that quite remarkable. For all those hundreds of years, this one beck was holding the fortunes of the people who lived in this village or this town, bolstering it and turning it into a really important place. How long did it last and when did it come to an end? The waterfall mill that we were talking about closed in 1964. Now, I feel that that's quite recent times because I was around then, let's put it that way. <laughs> but they'd gone on to make yo-yos, diablos. They were constantly Evolving. diversifying what's now needed, what's the current trends, and that's the secret of their success. But in terms of Ambleside's industry as a whole, from the milling, of course, we had the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. The mills in Lancashire were doing all of the high volume production and so in 1825 the market closed we had a different industry then of course so the what that is. yes well the new industry that took over and is still very strong today is that of tourism this setting it was part and parcel of the early days of tourism yes this was the site of a battle but a legal battle uh, there's a gentleman called Macarath when the land came up for sale public sale he bought it and thought, right, I will put gates at the bottom. And he fixed a charge of three shillings, which was a lot of money. It was unaffordable, apart from for the elite. He even restricted the times that you could bathe in the water. Bear in mind, this is also when the mills were still functioning. But this was a park now for the rich to be able to come and enjoy. So he thought he would make a lot of money by that. But what he didn't take into account was the townsfolk of Ambleside, they were absolutely outraged that someone could fence off their park, what they felt was rightfully theirs to be able to wander through, walk up the falls, go in the water if they wanted to. So a committee was set up by a gentleman called Colonel Rhodes and also Canon Hardwick Rawnsley. This was the days before the National Trust, but perhaps it was a forerunner to the formation of the National Trust because he went on to be one of the three founder members of the National Trust. So anyway, they set up a committee to fight Macarath in a legal sense. They came and had a real protest. The battle was really at its highest when they came and ripped the gates off, determined to just not let him have a turnstile there. So that gate at the bottom of the park has gone. But if you were to walk right up through, follow the wooded path up to the top of the waterfalls, you can still see the existing turnstile, which was the exit gate. There's no charge now, of course. Macarath gave in over the legal battle, but effectively he was bought off. And so he did make money out of it after all. So Macarath sold this uh, land, Stockgill Park, to that committee and uh, they resolved it over the course of time how they paid back their legal fees. The cost was covered by then Colonel Rhodes having to charge a penny for admission, but that's all. It was gone from three shillings down to one penny and he only charged admission until the point where they had covered their costs. And from that point onwards, it became free of charge. Well, we got really into the tourism age, and uh, probably the best way to put it into some kind of context and see how it affected visually the town is to actually go down there, down to the marketplace, right in the heart of the community. Well, we've made our way down Stockhill Lane, come to the top of Cheapside, and we've moved by the Market Hall, we're by the Salutation, but we can look back down onto the marketplace 
Uh, and being a one-way road system, the cars are whizzing by us and going down through the marketplace. The significant thing here, tourism is really taking off. This place is being transformed and the salutation itself plays a significant role in that time. That's right. And we know that the salutation has been here since before 1656 because you go into the Armit Museum, you'll be able to see a stone door lintel that was retrieved from within the salutation hotel with a date stone of 1656. In the times of the Market Charter in 1650, would have been a bustling hub of horses, people, dirt, smells, industrial activity. And if you notice for the Salutation Hotel, when you're here, if you look at it, if you arrive from the south, it's facing you, as were all of the coaching inns. So if you come up from the south, you'll be looking at the front of the White Lion, and now we're looking at the back of it. We're seeing the backs of the buildings as you travel around on the one-way system now. But you would have been two-way traffic. The building that we're stood next to now was at one point Barclays Bank, but very long time ago it was the stables for the salutation. It was the main place to come. But not everyone has rated it highly. We know that Thomas Grays is going right back to 1769. He had uh, written elegy written in a country churchyard. He considered staying here at the salutation and he said, and I'll just read a quote to you. On looking in the best bedchamber, dark and damp as a cellar. And he gave up and he resolved to stay in Kendall instead. That's a bit of a loss there for the salutation. However, moving forward in time, Harriet Martineau, she declared that actually you couldn't go wrong with a salutation. So as we look down into the marketplace, it was where the market cross was. Of course, the market closed down in 1825. The cross was never actually the shape of a cross. It was an obelisk and it was no longer needed. And so it was moved and it actually went off to someone's garden, believe it or not. And it was retrieved at a later date and now is outside what we now know as the post office. Now we call that area the Market Cross and we're currently in the marketplace. So it has just shifted. You mentioned about the changing face of the marketplace. It must have been quite a transition. The market hall that we see today was actually called the Cross House and it had pillars at the front, so an undercover sort of market area for those wet days. So the marketplace changed from being a market area bustling uh, with traders to being a busy area for tourism. And we know what it looked like in the beginning of the 1800s because an artist called William Green lived in one of those houses. And he captured on paper exactly what all of the buildings looked like in Ambleside. That was before the cross house was demolished. Many buildings were just knocked down, swept away for the Victorian era was all about bringing in what they felt was the modern developments of new buildings. So we had William Green living down in the marketplace and... Uh, next to him, he had a neighbour called the Nicholsons and Joseph Nicholson and Agnes Nicholson, his wife. She was a bookseller and also they were both running the post office there. It's where Tesco's is now. She would be one of Dorothy Wordsworth's friends. So we know that the Wordsworths were living in Rydal at the time. 1813, they were living at Rydal Mount. And Dorothy would come into Ambleside to collect her letters she became very great friends with Agnes Nicholson. Next door to Tesco's, you see a little white building now. 
that was once Brown's Coaches. And that's where if you were coming to book a coach, you wanted to go on a day trip around the Lake District, they were horse-drawn carriages. If you wanted to hire a motor vehicle, then it would be called a motor charabank. And they were fabulous. I wish we could have those now because they could have open top, tiered seats. Everyone could have a really good view. And so you could hire your coach there from Browns. And next door to Browns, what you can see now is Tyson's Shoe Shop. That's been there since 1897 as a shoe shop. But before that, that was where you would hire a boat. So before Windermere Steamers, you would be hiring a boat from there if you wanted to go and travel down to Bowness or Newby Bridge on the, on the boat. So you had all your options there as a tourist. You had a bookseller, you had your post office, you could send a letter, you could hire a coach or you could hire a boat. So where did the carriages and the, let's say the charabangs as well, where did they go? They did all of the same routes that we do today in a standard modern coach. They went up Dunmail Rays, they went over Kirkston Pass, they went all around the Lake District. The one thing was different though, in 1833 we had a new road and that was to bypass the North Bridge. Now the North Bridge in Ambleside, a tiny little road, if you've got uh, the Market Cross and the post office on your left-hand side, that small road there that goes over the Stockbeck, that was called North Road because it took you to the north, non-surprisingly. And a very, very narrow road was originally a Ford, then it was a Packhorse Bridge, and then eventually it was the way that all traffic had to go if it was going towards Keswick. So that road was bypassed to a nice, much bigger road called Rydal Road, and that goes right past the little bridge house. Did it go down Smithy Brow? That's right, you would have gone over Northbridge and down Smithy Brow. Smithy Brow, so-called, because that's where the smithy was, the blacksmiths. There were uh, many blacksmiths needed. Whether you think about the volume of horses that were required, and a horse can only go about 15 miles in a day before it needs resting. So you need lots of coaching inns, lots of blacksmiths, lots of trades that support the tourist industry. Well, let's just rewind in time and make our way over Northbridge to one of the oldest bits of town, That was lovely coming up North Road, wasn't it? We crossed over and then we went up Peggy Hill. What a lovely little name, a little footway by the wash house and uh, Fairview Terrace. The lack of wind I was very conscious of there on a warm late afternoon. It was absolutely joyous. And we've come upon to Howe Head. Now Howe Head means the top of the hill. And this is in what's called above stock, is that right? That's right. Yep. And this particular building I adore because I love really old buildings and it just oozes history. The windows are mean, as it were, with big timber lintels and you've got what looks like lead guttering and piping. It's got, which I think is really distinctive, Westmoreland chimneys, those round, tall, round, dignified, status-making chimneys, and there's a barn addition to one side, and I think the other side is a barn as well. So this is a serious building. Can you give a context on what it was? Yes, in the 1500s, this was actually the home of the forester for the barony of Kendal. Forrester would be looking after a vast amount of land all held within the barony of Kendal, looking after deer, um, the forest, obviously. And 
This is really the heart of Ambleside as it was in those days. I like to refer to it as old Ambleside because all the buildings, they are hundreds and hundreds of years old and they're all absolutely beautiful, as you say, with those vernacular architecture, the restless slates on the top, round chimneys. I love all of that. The little windows. You can just imagine this being a really busy place as a, as a farm area. And adjacent to us, a square-towered church, uh, St Anne's Court, it's called now. What is that all about? Yeah, so St Anne's Chapel, as was, was built in 1812. It was uh, replacing a wooden chapel that was here for many hundreds of years before that. And it was the church. And up until 1676, if you died here you were classed as living above stock. So the area was split in two by the stock back that we've talked a lot about already. That was the boundary. Above stock meant if you lived to the north of the stock, then you belonged to the parish of Grasmere. And you would be carried in your box when you died along the coffin route, as it's called now, to be buried at Grasmere. And if you lived below stock, I know that's going to be your next question. <laughs> if you lived below stock, you would be taken down to St Martin's at Bonas. Looking again at uh, St Anne's Court, as it's now called, when did it lose its function as a church? The ground outside it is actually still consecrated. The burial ground, you can still go and have a wander around and have a look, but the church itself was deconsecrated. It was only in use for around about 43 years because of the explosion in the population because in Victorian times we've had the arrival of the train to Windermere, tourism, people visiting. The church was deemed too small. The town grew. That's right, the town grew so much that the church that was suitable in 1812, by the time it was the 1850s, it just wasn't big enough. And so St Mary's, which is the church with the spire down in, in Ambleside on the level ground in 1854 that was completed, and that was built to hold almost 1,000 people, 998 to be precise. And people in those days would go to church even when they're on holiday. People still do now, but not in the way they did then. Everyone was churchgoers. During the period between around about uh, 1791 and 1877, we know from census details and turnpike trusts the number of coaches that were coming through Ambleside. It went from 379 a year in the late 1700s to 21,840, less than 100 years later. You can see how traffic increased, how many people were here from that movement of coaches coming in. Because the turnpike trusts were a great measure of people paying to come in on the roads and you could you could measure. It was a census of a sort. It was a census of a sort, but of course what's quite interesting actually since the 1900s, the population was around about two and a half thousand and even now the population is around about two and a half thousand because that's the residents that live here. Whereas the number of people that can stay in Ambleside goes into multiple thousands because of the number of holiday homes.
Well, that's a lovely little walk down there. We came down North Road and then through Rattle Gill under the archway and into the street, the main thoroughfare as it is today. And inevitably there before us was the bridge house and everybody knows about the bridge house. There it is sitting over the top of Stock Gill, a bridge to nowhere that isn't a bridge. <laughs> what is it, by the way, Alison? <laughs> Would you like me to explain? Yes, please. So, Standing outside the bridge house, it's best to use your imagination. Just pretend that road's not there. Because when this was built, it actually started off with a little wooden bridge and it led to orchards and all this land was owned by the Braithwaites. So when we passed the Golden Rule, that would have been their brewery and the old Ambleside Hall would have been there. So we had a little bridge into the orchard and then it was built into stone and it was built as an apple store. And that's where you want to store your apples to keep them frost-free and in a nice cool spot above Stockbeck. But over the years, the uses have changed. It's been a tea room. Once it had someone who was repairing chairs and he got the nickname Cherry Rig. Apparently he had him, his wife and six children. It's quite hard to believe that a family of eight could fit in here. It would be a very tight squeeze. What we do know on the parish registers is that there was a family called Rig and they did have a large number of children. So perhaps that's true. But it was falling into disrepair in the 1920s and a campaign was set up to save it. And involved in that campaign was... Hardwick Warnsley, and also one of the early members of the Armits, William Helis. Now that's the husband of Beatrix Potter. So Beatrix Potter also was involved in saving the bridge house. Now it's in the care of both the National Trust and the Armits Museum, and the Armits lets you go in there once a week, or you can book a ticket to have a look inside. With the chirping of the rooks, I'm reminded that I'm in a stately place with lovely trees and the wonderful spire of St Mary's. We've come into the grounds of the churchyard, an array of churchyard features and the gravestones of a multiple number of people. But the one we've come to stand specifically by is Charlotte Marina Shaw Mason. Now... Could you tell us a little bit about this lady, Charlotte Mason? 2023 marks 100 years since Charlotte Mason died. So there's a lot going on this year, the displays inside the armits, for instance. But Charlotte Mason, born in Bangor, uh, actually visited Ambleside when she was in her 20s, falls in love with the place, but comes back at a much later age. And in 1892, she moved to Ambleside and she set up House of Education on Rydal Road in a building called Springfield. She found it was instantly successful and House of Education was for training governesses uh, in the methods of homeschooling. Well, we've come to this very impressive cross and grave. There's a series of quotes underneath it. I think these are worth hearing. Yes, first of all, it says a description about what Charlotte did and it says... She devoted her life to the work of education, believing that children are dear to our Heavenly Father and that they are a precious national possession. And she had three mottos, and I'll read those out too. So education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life. Another one is I am, I can, I ought, I will. And the third one is for the children's sake. And 
At the foot of Charlotte Mason's grave is quite often overlooked, but it's the grave of her companion, Elsie Kitching. Now, it's a little square grave, and on each corner of the grave is a K. It's K, 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 K. And in the middle it says E-K, Elsie Kitchen, who died after Charlotte, and so she's just kind of squashed into this little bit, just so that they can be together. And the other significant gravestone in this churchyard is Kurt Schwitter's. Kurt Schwitters was an artist. He escaped from the Nazis and he came to, first of all, the Island Man and then he came to the Lake District. He wasn't a well man and he actually was painting and earning money by doing portraits while sitting on the steps of the bridge house. That's how he would pay for his doctor's bills is by uh, doing portraits for passers-by. But the story doesn't end there because much later his family decided they actually wanted him back in Hanover and so he was exhumed and reburied in Hanover in Germany. The stone is still easy to find. It's not signposted but it is here and this is a place that was dear to him. It's where he chose to have his final few years. Well, it's been an absolute joy to be with you today, Alison. We've had a wonderful time. I don't know how long we've been, but the the days improve. And so that must be symptomatic of this wonderful place and the company you've been. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Journey's end, and we're back where we started, Mark. We're back just on the edge of Rothay Park here. The day turned out absolutely beautiful. I'm in my T-shirt. You're in your T-shirt. What a lovely way to spend the day. Uh, I learned a huge amount. Great fun. It was indeed. Alison gave us little bits of insight I was unaware of. I loved it up Stock Gill. Yeah. I love it, of course, by the Roman Fort and at the head of Windermere. That's a lovely place to go. Not too many people necessarily go there or downstream with the Rothay, Bromley Riley Bridge. It's a lovely little sneaky way. Kind of a locals, that's a locals trip, I it think. It is often. that, yes. Loads of interesting facts and features. Quite a factually dense podcast today, I think, Mark. But there's so much here for a place to have seen not only this huge Roman fort but also those Norse settlers, and then moving it on to that huge explosion in interest in the Victorian era. I love that figure um, that Alison came up with, with the number of carriages coming into town. And you just saw this rocketing of people numbers, which leaves us with the legacy we're in today. Ambleside is not everybody's favourite town. It's busy, it's a real tourist hub. But... There's still a lot of people who adore it here and Alison's clearly playing a key part in town life. And actually one other thing we should say is 50p from the sale of every book goes to a local charity, AFAF, which is the Ambleside Action for a Future. Really great charity. We've met up with the the guys who are running it and they're doing fantastic work here working on kind of nature-friendly schemes locally. They're doing a lot of community action work. So there's still this thriving community. But another interesting thing that Alison said was the population hasn't really changed much in the past, whatever, 50 years it was or something like that, wasn't it? So yeah, two and a half thousand, and that's it. Yes, <laughs> it shall stay that way. 
we're coming to the end of the podcast. Our usual tiny bits of housekeeping, we'll keep them very brief. First and foremost, if you like what we do here and you would like to support us, the best way really is to buy the books, this growing series of books, www.countrystride.co.uk. Secondly, you can gift us as little as £2 a month, which doesn't buy you much these days, via Patreon. And again, you can find out all about that, www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, yes, on uh, Facebook and Twitter, at Countrystride1. And there are at least 100 previous episodes up available now at www.countrystride.co.uk. So whatever your interest in Cumbria and the Lakes, they will surely be there. We've covered them all. We've got some lovely uh, podcasts lined up for the next few weeks. So we look forward to sharing those with you too when we venture out again on the next Country Stride.